the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CGSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. We are broadcasting slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory. Sprawlcast is a show for curious Albertans who want more than the daily news grind. We go deep to bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Stories like this one. It's an issue that Calgary City Council has been grappling with for decades. Actually, it goes back even further than that. City Council has been asking, what should we do about this, for over a century. And that's no exaggeration. I'm talking about the issue of human injuries and deaths inflicted by cars on city streets, and how to slow drivers down. About a quarter of traffic collisions in Calgary happen in residential neighborhoods, according to the city. That shakes out to just over 9,000 collisions a year, and of those, more than 500 cause serious injury or death. Now, City Hall has revisited this issue many times, looking at the pros and cons of reducing speed limits in neighborhoods. And on February 1st, City Council finally took action. The proposed change is actually quite tame. It's what city admin calls an incremental approach. The research shows that 30 kilometers per hour is best if you really want to save lives and minimize injuries. But the Calgary proposal is to reduce residential speed limits from 50 to 40 kilometers per hour with the idea of eventually going to 30. In the meantime, City Admin is recommending that streets are built and retrofitted so that the 30 km per hour speed limit, if it ever comes into effect, will be quote-unquote credible for drivers. But let's zoom out, because if you go back over a century in Calgary, City Council was discussing this very same thing. And if you look at the history, it's been women who have often been leading the charge on this issue and organizing for change. In 1917, the Calgary Herald noted that the increasing number of automobile accidents in Calgary is becoming a serious matter. Cars were still new, and as they began to overtake city streets, they were threatening the safety of the walking and bicycling public. The big problem was street corners. Drivers were taking corners at speed and hitting people. Now, at the time, Calgary had a provincially mandated speed limit of 20 miles per hour, or 32 kilometers per hour. As time went on, there were more cars on the streets and more collisions. And in 1918, there was talk of reducing the speed limit from 20 to 15 miles per hour. The local council of women called for this, and the police chief of the day, Alfred Cuddy, supported the change. But drivers and industry rose up in protest. Here's one headline from that year. Proposed cut in auto speed limit rouses drivers. And the arguments for and against are very familiar. One driver told the Herald that, quote, Police are starting at the wrong end of the trouble when they begin by reducing the speed limit. End quote. Well, the Automobile Trades Association registered its objection, 
and the campaign for lower speed limits was kiboshed shortly after. One alderman argued that the existing rules were good ones. The issue, he said, was that they weren't being enforced. And so years passed, and eventually, instead of the speed limit going down, it went up. In 1953, city council increased the speed limit to 30 miles per hour, which shakes out to just under 50 kilometers per hour. And almost immediately, people asked why. One Herald subscriber wrote a letter to the editor in 1955 and suggested that it should be 20 miles per hour in residential areas. The fact that this wasn't in place, they wrote, showed base negligence by city council as a whole. Time passed, and over the years we got playground zones and school zones and photo radar to try to reduce injuries and deaths. But even the complaints of photo radar aren't new. In 1927, the Herald complained about police camping out on city highways to catch speeders, including one stretch by Miwata Park, west of downtown. The Herald noted that there were several such strips of roadway in the city, If the goal is safety, asked the Herald, why are police camping out where there are no intersections or blind corners? What was the real motivation? Every so often, wrote the Herald, one gets the idea that their interpretation of the regulation is entirely mercenary. Or to translate that into modern terms, it's a cash cow. Now let's fast forward nearly a century to 2019. Earlier this week, the CBC released a report on the use of photo radar in playground zones in our city. Now, I've made no secret over the years about my disdain for photo radar and how I think it's mostly about generating revenue and has very little to do with public safety. That was Andrew Beckler, one of the morning hosts on X92.9, and he was responding to a CBC Calgary investigation into where photo radar is deployed in the city. As it turns out, of the 1,200 playground zones in the city, Nearly two-thirds of tickets in the last three years were issued in just 10 of them. That's absolutely crazy. It's not that people are speeding that much more often in these locations or that pedestrian safety is that much more important in these locations. It's that the city has realized that these spots are making enormous money for them. So they're parking photo radar there every chance they get. Now, before I even looked at the report, I knew what the number one location would be because I complained about it almost immediately when I moved here four years ago. I've never seen a more ridiculous 30 zone. Then on Elbow Drive, over 600 meters of reduced speed for what's essentially two swings in a slide, which are behind a fence, there's no school nearby, the footpath is set back from the road. It feels absurd to drive 30 through this thing. Why is this one of the longest playground zones in Canada? Is it because these are all million dollar properties? The Elbow Drive playground zone is a contentious one and CBC's investigation shone a light on inequality when it comes to speed limits and enforcement. They found that of the top 10 zones, where the bulk of photo radar tickets were issued between 2016 and 2018, none were east of Deerfoot Trail. I mean, that's concerning. This is Councillor George Chahal, who represents Ward 5 in the city's northeast. When we talk about the inequalities or equity when it comes to um, having safe neighborhoods and communities, um, there's a clear issue there. And we, I can point to 10 locations easily in uh, Ward 5 or in Northeast Calgary that could use a significant amount of enforcement. 
Um, there's regular speeding. There's been uh, accidents uh, involving pedestrians. Even um, over the last number of months, we've seen that occur. And we've had a, a public outcry in many communities from Falcon Ridge to Saddle Ridge to Skyview Ranch and Redstone asking for more enforcement to deal with the excessive speeding that's occurring in our communities. When CBC did its investigation, looking at 2016 to 2018, they found that police parked a photo radar van on Elbow Drive more days than they didn't, a full 78% of the time. Police collected more than $5 million in fines there over those three years. This is something I've wondered about for a long time. What's the story behind that Elbow Drive playground zone? Why is it so long? And how did it come to be? To find answers, we need to go back to 1990. There's a feeling in the air that you can't get anywhere except in Calgary. In 1990, Calgary was a city of 700,000 people. The city was still riding the high from the Winter Olympics two years prior. And oil and gas was very much the dominant industry employing a good portion of the population. People like Bruce Gordon. I was working in the oil business for a company called Bow Valley Industries and uh, managed their land department. Bruce had just gotten married. We'd both been divorced. We'd only been married for a year and a half. This is Jan Gordon. She's a marriage and family therapist and an instructor at St. Mary's University. But at the time, she was just launching her career. Bruce and Jan each had two kids when they married. The youngest was Ian, and in 1990 he was seven years old. The Gordons lived in the community of Mayfair, just south of Glenmore Trail. But Ian attended Rideau Park School, across the river from Elbow Drive. And after school, he'd often walk to the Glencoe Club, which is a private sports club. Ian was um, bright, funny. Stubborn little cuss. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I grew up in a family where I'm the eldest of six kids, and, and the family belief was um, keep your kids busy. So, and, and given that I had been a member of the Glencoe for many years, it just seemed natural to keep the kids in the Glencoe as well, bring Bruce and, and his boys into the Glencoe. So we had Ian in badminton lessons, uh, he was a good little athlete. He liked to play baseball and soccer. And um, very loquacious. <laughs> lots to say about lots of things. Very inventive, too. He and his buddy Oliver had invented a, a game. It was like game. a detective game, board game. And it was pretty, quite complicated for a couple of seven-year-olds. Yeah, it was a... Uh, they had to, and he had inspector somebody or other that he was always... He was going to be, I think, it, but he always told everybody that he was going to be a paleontologist. Yep. That was his aim in life, was to be a paleontologist. It was late September, and Ian had just started grade three. On the afternoon of September 26th, Jan was heading to a meeting, and she noticed something unusual. So I was on my way, driving nor- north, I guess sort of east, but... Um, on Elbow Drive to go to Rita Park School to have a conversation with the teachers about him being transferred into the GATE program. And um, 
that's the gifted and talented education program and the road the the traffic was really backed up i was at the lights at about sifton boulevard when it really slowed down and i thought uh, this is a little early in the day for this kind of heavy traffic and as i kept on driving slowly um the ambulance was gone by this time, but his um, backpack had been cut off him and it was lying on the side of the road. She recognized it immediately. It was a special backpack that Ian's uncle had given him. And right away, Jan went to the Glencoe. And looked around and looked around and asked people. And one of his classmates came up to me and said um, that uh, Ian had been hit. So, and again, we're back before cell phones. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, uh, the Glencoe actually phoned Bruce. And I was in a meeting at work with, uh, I was manager of a number of departments at the company I worked at, and they called me out of the meeting and uh, said, there's a phone call for you. And they told me that he had been hit and was on his way to the children's hospital, the old children's hospital at the top of 17th Avenue by... Uh, Crowchild, um, and I just I just remember dropping the phone and heading out the door. I didn't even say anything to the people in the meeting or anything. I just headed out the door, got in the car, drove up to the children's hospital, and jumped out of the car and went running into the hospital looking for somebody to talk to. Where is he and what's what's going on? And they actually had a person there whose job it is to meet distraught parents coming flying through the door when the children have been hurt. Mary, her name was, and she stopped me and started talking to me and trying to calm me down, which was beginning to work until I saw him go by on a stretcher and his whole face was purple. and you know, just, So I started getting upset again and, and um, they put me in a room and gave me a cup of coffee and said, stay here, don't go near what's, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you when we have time. And so, you know, the main thing is get him into the trauma unit and into the ICU, so. And then I came in. And so she I showed was up. a few minutes behind him getting to the hospital. Came in and calmed me down some more. <clears throat> but it was, well, it was terrifying. We had no idea for over 72 hours whether he was going to live or not. Over time, the Gordons figured out what had happened to Ian when he tried to cross Elbow Drive after school that day. When the accident happened, uh, Ian was crossing, he came across the little swinging bridge and he was with a bunch of other kids from Rideau Park School and most of them were headed across either to go home or go over to the Glencoe Club, which is about three blocks from there. What had happened is he pushed the button and walked out to start onto the street. There was a car already stopped at the crosswalk and the fellow in the truck that hit him came up and went around in the inside lane and hit him and knocked him off into the curb giving him a traumatic brain injury. And um, he's still right-side hemiplegic. He's paralyzed on his right side or partially paralyzed. And fortunately, they had had, um, I don't remember what the generic name for it is, but it's Curare in the, in the ambulance. And it was administered right away. One of the problems with brain injuries is that sometimes um, they'll convulse. And it just makes it worse because they're snapping around. They're unconscious, but they're snapping around. Their brain is splashing around in their body. So they'd given them this derivative of... It's called Pavulon. Pavulon, that's it. And it just basically semi-paralyzes them so that they don't thrash around. And it probably saved him from further damage because he'd, he'd been hit in the side of the head by the truck, flown through the air, and then landed on the back of his head. So you got the bowl of jelly thing happening with the brain. 
So he wasn't just just the right side. There were other things that went wrong as well and other parts of his body that didn't work properly as well. And that brilliant little mind that was in there, uh, one of the neuropsychologists said, well, there was probably a Ferrari engine in there and now it's a Volkswagen. It'll still get you where you want to go, but you're not going to go there very fast. And that's more or less what's happened to him. I mean, he, he has a university degree. It took him 10 years to get it and a lot of help, but he got it. But he's not competitively employable because he can't focus on things long enough. After Ian's injury in 1990, the Gordons' lives were turned upside down. Jan was offered a job she really wanted, and she had to turn it down to take care of Ian. And Ian had to learn to walk and talk again. Was he in a wheelchair when he came home? Or he was on a walker. And at that point, he was on a walker. Yeah, yeah his right leg uh, was the, you had the, the hemiplasia. It was fairly in his right side, where semi-paralyzed. His left leg had been broken. His ankle was broken by the incident, because when he got hit the side of the head here, he also got hit here. And uh, had been pinned together and all that sort of thing. So, and his, I think his left arm was broken as well. And he had a fractured skull. He still, to this day, has double vision. He's had a couple of eye surgeries, He's, but he can't. He has so hearing he, he can't drive. He, He's he can got get a hearing it. deficit as well. Yeah. From where he was hit. And, um, and not like mine, which is old age. No, the vision was poor. I mean, the, the, uh, <laughs> um, his eyeball was almost Yeah, it was almost out. Resting on yeah, his I cheek. told you when I saw him go by in the hospital, his face purple, but it looked like his eye was out on his cheek. It was. And, and uh, blood coming from his ear. and He was pretty damaged. The same week that Ian got hit, in the fall of 1990, drivers hit two other pedestrians on Elbow Drive. Ian had been struck on a Wednesday, and on Friday morning, as Ian lay in critical condition, a driver hit a senior who was crossing the street. The collision broke her hip. This was further south on 49th Avenue. The community called on City Hall and police to do something to slow down traffic. But after the first two accidents, a police inspector told the Herald that Elbow Drive was no more of a problem than other roadways with similar volumes of traffic. We've got a whole city to look after, he said, not just Elbow Park. But then, the following Tuesday, another driver hit a 14-year-old kid on a skateboard, resulting in a leg injury. This was at 36th Avenue, a few blocks south of where Ian was hit. By then, residents were fed up, and they decided to do something about it. We were a, a small community. We were fierce, and it was mainly uh, a group of women who organized, and we got a lot of attention. This is Wendy Brownie. She owns Inspirati, a fine linens shop in Mission. And at the time, she was president of the Elbow Park Community Association. And before all these pedestrians got hit, people in the neighborhood had already been warning that somebody was going to get hurt due to the heavy traffic. Elbow Drive was a kind of thoroughfare into downtown from neighborhoods to the south. I was there as community president and received all three phone calls about three accidents in one week. I knew that this was very serious and I shared it with the other board members of our community association and we decided that there were other communities who were experiencing the same thing the communities that bordered along elbow drive and so we got together with these communities 
so that our city politicians could see that it wasn't just a singular concern. At first, the group didn't get much response from City Hall. No one called us back, and I just became a pest because I knew that we needed accountability and we needed to be able to trust our elected officials to help us. And we referred to the sanctity and the integrity of our community being an inner city community that was really the gateway into the heart of the city. We were always so proud and and I believe continue to be proud that it's an excellent entrance to uh, from an older neighborhood into uh, the larger downtown area. We wanted to preserve that, but we wanted to make sure that those traveling north and south along Elbow Drive respected the fact that they were driving through a neighborhood. A week after all these pedestrians got hit in the fall of 1990, residents took to the streets with placards saying things like, Safety Number One. The City Transportation Department suggested random speed traps and more traffic safety education for kids in the area. This wasn't good enough for Wendy Brownie and her group. In November of 1990, she told the Herald that, quote, if they don't impede the flow of traffic, we will. We had uh, uh, senior citizens. We had mothers with babies in strollers. And we were organized. We knew that we had to slow down and stop traffic to get the attention of our elected officials. And the group knew what they wanted. Our end goal was to lower the traffic speed, lower the traffic speed and to extend the length of the playground zone so that all communities who were affected in the accidents would be heard from. By January of 1991, City Council had agreed to expand the playground zone, lower the speed limit, and install more traffic lights along Elbow Drive. And what happened next was interesting. Other communities saw this and were like, hey, we want traffic slowed down in our neighborhood too. Following this, we were asked to come and speak to other communities to help them organize to get the attention of City Hall so that as a city, we could look at the possibility of lowering uh, speed limits all across Calgary. In the 80s and 90s, City Hall basically treated speed limit reductions as one-offs, looking at them on a case-by-case basis as neighborhoods demanded it. In 1992, for example, City Council reduced the speed limit on Riverdale Avenue in Elboya and Britannia in the southwest, they dropped it from 50 to 40 kilometers per hour because the community clamored for it. At the same time, a council committee recommended that admin look into reducing the speed limit citywide on all residential streets in Calgary. But when this came to council, councillors backed off from even doing that. So let's get back to the issue raised earlier in this episode about disparity between Calgary neighborhoods when it comes to traffic safety. Drivers hit and injure kids all throughout the city, 
Did the Elbow Drive playground zone come about because it's an affluent neighborhood? That question has been raised for years, and it's a bit of a sore point among the folks who lived through it. Wendy Brownie takes umbrage at the suggestion that the playground zone was expanded because it's a wealthy area. It has never had anything to do with affluence. It has to do with the fact that many years ago, we experienced three accidents in less than one week. Serious accidents. No one took charge, so we, as the people, organized. We spent actually years to help other communities and to make sure that people also knew that it had nothing to do with affluence. But if we can organize and share information to help, I think that was the goal then, and it certainly is the goal for today. When I spoke with Councillor George Chahal, he made the point that not everyone is able to put a lot of time and energy into organizing. The reality is um, residents of uh, Northeast Calgary working are working class Calgarians. Um, many of them are working two jobs to provide for their families, and they don't have the available time to um, organize and try to find ways to raise money to fund these type of initiatives. And so that's a city of haves and have-nots and some who are able to and have the time and money and others who don't. Um, That's the role and responsibility from um, city administration and elected officials, as well as law enforcement um, to be able to advocate and bring forward equitable um, solutions to make sure all our communities are safe. Um, You should not have fear in any community in the city of Calgary uh, of feeling unsafe. Um, Public safety is a right for all Calgarians. On that last point, Wendy Brownie and Councillor Chahal are in agreement. Now, interestingly, when I spoke with Bruce and Jan Gordon, they each had different opinions on whether or not city council should lower speed limits citywide. If they did it the same way they did with the playground zones and said from 7.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night, you have to go 40 in a residential area, I I would be on side with that because that's the time of the day that you're going to have something happen and somebody's going to run out from behind a parked car or whatever. But just to say, no, that's it, every district in the city, you've got to go 40, and then with the intention of taking it down to 30 later, that's just going to create nothing but a pile of speed traps. People are not going to crawl around town at 30 kilometers an hour. Uh, but, you know, from my perspective, now, Jan has a different viewpoint on it. Do I? Well, you told me that you thought it would be just fine. To, to slow it down? Mm-hmm. I do. I do think it's just, I think people are in a, in a big hurry there. I don't, I don't know whether it's just because we try to do too much, we cram too much in, and then we hurry between stops. But um, just slow down, smell the roses, and leave a kid alive. <laughs> I'm going to give the last word here to Jan Gordon. I will say something else, if, if I may. Just I'll, I'll throw it in for you, is that because um, <clears throat> you were asking how we managed. Um, the other three kids were really traumatized as well. Yes. Very, very much so. Um, my the, the, my daughter, who was the oldest one at the time, at this time, uh, it 
it almost froze her. It almost paralyzed her, and she dropped out of university. Um, Alex became withdrawn and... Uh, acting out? Had to go live with his mother out of the coast? Yeah, he did some acting out. And um, the older boy um, resorted to abusing alcohol. So everybody was trying to cope with something that should never happened. Yeah. Wasn't of their doing. So I offer you that. Just it's it. Yeah, every yeah. every one of us were hurt. End of line. Thanks for listening, and see you again soon. listening to Sprawlcast. I'm Jeremy Clausus, the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl, and this episode was edited by Mike Todd, who moved from Calgary to Vancouver Island last year. But he tells me that working on Sprawlcast helps him stay connected to what's happening in Alberta right now. Glad to help out, Mike, and hey, thanks for your work on this episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode on our website at sprawlcalgary.com. We get our transcripts done through Opal Transcription Services, a local Calgary company. And I've also posted some of the historical newspaper clippings that I mentioned in this story. It's worth taking a look because it's really striking how resonant those century-old headlines are today. Make sure to follow us on social media. We're at Sprawl Calgary on all the main platforms. Our theme music is by Dandy Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening and see you next time.